This podcast is called Obsessed. Joseph Scrimshaw and his guest get some secrets off their chest. You should listen. It's the best. Hello and welcome to Obsessed with me, Joseph Scrimshaw. I'm sitting in my home with a great guest. He's a writer, a creator, a pop culture professional. In many ways, it's Jason Bischoff. Gads, that's quite the intro. I hope to live up to it. (laughs) I've been having a lot of fun with the intros because I look at people's sort of resumes online, or if I know them personally, I think about like how I know them and try to come up with what what are the right nouns. But then I get to ask the people what they think their nouns are, (laughs) what they want their nouns to be. Sure. Uh, well, um, first, before we even get started today, uh, I am wholly humbled and then on the same token, completely terrified that you're having me go after James Arnold Taylor. Um, so my apologies to kind of the audience, because this is not going to necessarily backfill those massive shoes, but I'm going to do my very best. But nonetheless, thank you for today. James is is very humble. He would say the same about you. Oh, I doubt as much. I don't know if my episode can lead into Jason's. That is what James would say. Gads, no. Um... (laughs) But thanks for asking about the nouns. Uh, Very interesting. Uh, I guess I'm a little bit of a professional pop culture weirdo um, (laughs) or catch-all might be a a better term. Okay. Um, Maybe to give a little bit of history here or context. So I've been in entertainment and toys the better part of the last 16 years or so. Damn. Um, Started at Playmates Toys. all of in 2004. And for those not familiar, um, at the time, I was certainly working on Ninja Turtles, uh, Disney Princess, The Simpsons, and a handful of other titles. Um, and it was like a huge fulfillment uh, and and wish, for, I should say, wish fulfillment for me because I was a huge Turtles kid growing up, okay. right? So here I was kind of in this incredible space to write a lot of like the new uh, original biographies for like Metalhead and Le- it was just crazy to okay. actually be able to do all the in-house copywriting sort of like for the flavor text that would come yeah, with figures yeah. or on you know online that kind of thing Exactly okay. exactly and so I would do a lot of that in-house copywriting and we were doing a lot of direct to DVD coverage so I was commenting on the then 2003 um Ninja Turtles TV show which we were subsidizing in cost and uh I won't fall too far down that rabbit hole, but (laughs) suffice it to say, I was at Playmates for the better part of three and a half years. Okay. Uh, Ultimately transitioned from a creative and kind of creative services role to licensing. Uh, And I jumped over to Blizzard, excuse me, Blizzard Entertainment. So for those who are familiar um, or may not be, uh, it would be things like World of Warcraft and Starcraft and Diablo and what ultimately became my obsession there, at least, (laughs) which was Overwatch, right? So I was there for about better part of a decade and kind of building a lot of their direct consumer businesses around what we call hard lines, which would be things like action figures and toys and publishing and collectibles okay. and all that kind of stuff. So I was overseeing the entirety of that business, both direct to consumer and then also all of our licensed uh, initiatives, right? Okay. So there for about a decade. After that, jumped to uh, Power Rangers for about three years, which again was was a big deal for me because Is I was it... a huge Power Rangers kid yeah. growing up. Worked on the franchise end of things and the licensing end of things. Survived the transition over to Hasbro um, when it was acquired last summer. And then uh, about six months ago, jumped over to Funko. And so now I'm over there kind of doing anything and everything, um, working on some top secret stuff. So that's why I say (laughs) catch all, kind of a weirdo, been on the creative side, been on the business side, and sometimes in between. Okay. So you obviously get to have the thrill of your day-to-day is engaging with all sorts of different fandoms that you have had in different creative things. 
is it more for you that you just want to be in that world and you don't mind what it is you actually do within that world as long as you are surrounded by Power Rangers and Funko Pops, you're fine? Uh, no, actually, great question. So the truthiness is, it's like anybody in a creative capacity, sometimes you have to develop other kinds of skills to just simply professionally survive, yeah. right? So for me, um, fundamentally, if we're talking about those nouns I, I identify most with, you're absolutely right. It would be things like writer and creator, okay. right? These are the things where that's where uh, my heart truly lies, right? And I actually do run an entire kind of side business just focused on children's entertainment. So I do a, a lot of original IP for kids 6 to 11. Okay. Um, got a couple shows in the hopper, right? So that's lovely and wonderful, but on the same token, got to pay those bills. And <laughs> okay. so for me, it was kind of this excuse of, hey, I'm going to continue to learn all these different business acumen type um, facilities, yeah. Uh, add them to my repertoire, repertoire. Excuse me, <laughs> and then um, ultimately, in many cases, those have become, professionally speaking, or what, at least what you list on a LinkedIn resume, my career. Yeah. Um, but it's honestly all just an orbit. So many rad, awesome bodies of stuff, and for me, it's awesome to be able to touch these bigger pieces and parts and those things that we love just yeah. in all sorts of different ways, right? So I'm just adding a little bit of pepper in each recipe. Okay, cool. Yeah, and you have that fan perspective. Yeah. So you know the correct pepper. Instead yeah, of the, well, <laughs> cra- the, the cracked random. and freshly grounded is usually best. <laughs> uh, so when you're working on your own IP, and I imagine when you say you have things in your hopper, they're, you're pitching, they're in development, that yeah, kind of yeah. thing, right? So when you have those development meetings, are you like, and also... I know exactly how to license all of these creations of my own. I can get the Funko Pops. I can get the Hasbro. (laughs) It's certainly part of the conversation, right? Um, It's interesting because today there is simply so much content out there on a variety of platforms in various medium. And what's interesting, at least conversationally for me, is I can say, listen, I've done business development in each and every one of these respective areas, and that's kind of my unfair advantage, is that not only do I know how to take this thing and bring it to all these different spaces, but inversely so, I know how to take all these different spaces and bake it into the thing yeah, so that it's ready. And an old term that we used to use over in the Playmates days was it's very toyetic, right? So if I'm building something for kids 6 to 11, it's very inherently toyetic. There's the role play item. There's the things that translate to action figure or whatever it may be. And that stuff's really important to me because if I may say as much, that's all part of a much grander dialogue. It's all part of the actual relationship that a child and or an adult like myself may actually have with the things that we love, right? Because suddenly there's tangible value to those franchises. It's not just abstract living in our imaginations, but it's actually that thing that we're physically manipulating in real space. And to me, that's a continuation of the adventure, right? Not only am I taking those totemic values that I love about the show and infusing them into little pieces of plastic or little icons or whatever they may be, but I'm actually... I'm continuing the adventure in my mind and in my hands as well, right? So that's kind of part of my selling point, if you will, as I've had these development meetings through the years. It's just, hey, I know how to play both ends of the spectrum. I'm kind of like playing all... all positions on the the ball field, so to speak. <laughs> yes, on the action figure ball field. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're speaking my language. Obviously, anybody who listens to this podcast knows that I love action figures. But I've taken that into, like, the things that I'm writing. Yeah. And particularly with, with uh, Funko Pops, hmm. that the ones that are always attractive to me are the ones that are some, like, iconic moment. 
and I never like I, I'm sure a lot of people listening could hear the word toyetic and think well, that's kind of corporate speak. Go sure. go to ancient arguments about the Ewoks are only there to sell toys. Man, that means it's bad. Like, but for me, you look like at something like a Funko Pop. Like I think about uh, from Stranger Things, Eleven with the Ego. Yeah, that is a moment that has power in the show creatively because it is specific. Yeah, it has power as a toy because of that initial creative specificity yeah so it's a back and forth conversation it's not like creators going mm, what so funko pop i guess if she ate a waffle so we'll jam it in right it's that you know so when i'm writing i'm thinking of like what are those moments that people are going to want to celebrate and physically be able to hold those ideas literally and that's part of if i may say as much that's part of the magic of creating this stuff is like you can anticipate and attempt to synthesize those things and it's good and right for you to do so because we are a, a shorthand culture, right? Yeah. Like we love to see those moments captured in time. The best part of the job, I think, is when you ultimately find yourself in the actual production pipeline and those things expose themselves uh, or those moments expose themselves, things that you could have never anticipated, Yeah. right? And suddenly those are more resonant or iconic to the franchise and you have to learn to embrace those in kind of this ultimate game of improv and just make it as cool as possible and double down on that that moment in time yeah. or double down on those characters, right? We have countless examples throughout the things that we mutually love, even even Star Wars on yeah. Itself, right? I don't think anybody could have anticipated, at least in the Empire days, that Boba Fett was going to be resonant. Nonetheless, um, uh, take on a much more uh, a much more pronounced role going forward, especially yeah. as we led into the prequels. Uh, and kind of creating the icon of the Mandalorians going forward. And this is a whole rabbit hole. Again, we won't <laughs> dive down, yes. right? And as somebody who's a fan of Force Center, like, I know we could speak for hours on this very topic. <laughs> but uh, but nonetheless, again, it's kind of, it's magic, right? And yeah. it's improv. You're going to plan these certain moments, these beats in time. You hope to hit those beats. But on the same token, you have to keep yourself open to discovery. Yeah, yeah. Awesome, awesome. Well, there are so many rabbit holes that we could talk about. Yeah. You offered me many rabbit holes when I asked <laughs> what you wanted to talk about. And they're all great. Uh, but the one I wanted to talk about is Batman the animated series oh. so uh when and how did the show come into your life yeah so wow Batman the animated series small preface it is seminal to me right okay. and I sort of look at it as something that in many respects define defines me as a person um awesome. so it goes well beyond just the show, it sort of defines me as a creator, it defines me as a fan, and in many respects, it defines a lot of culturally what we now appreciate um, of Batman in general, yeah. right? So for me, it's very simple. Uh, I have been a fan my entire life, and I and I really mean that in the truest sense. Um, I was a product of the, the days of children's TV when there really wasn't any children's TV to speak <laughs> of, shy of Saturday morning, yeah. right? So once upon a time, and I know this may startle some, but uh, really the entirety of what we understood as cartoons kind of lived on, on in that Saturday morning block yeah. uh, across a variety of different channels. Everything else, at least post-school, was kind of like, I love Lucy, Gilligan's Island, right? <laughs> Brady Bunch. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And out here in California, for a time, probably in the late 80s, it was sort of a three-series three block. It was... I Love Lucy, Gilligan's Island, and Batman 66, Okay, right? And as a really young kid, this was defining. Yeah. Um, because I took it literally and seriously. I didn't see the comedic elements of the show until I was much older. Uh, for me, it was a straight take on the character of Batman, right? And I promise I'm getting to animated series. Oh, no, no, it's just fine. I, I like the context. Um, 
So uh, my next door neighbor, he was really into Robin. I was really into Batman, <laughs> right? And for years, we would run up and down our neighborhood wearing these hand-sewn capes that his grandmother had put together for us, right? And sliding down trees and getting all crazy scratched up because they were the bat poles, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that's really just a tee up to say that I was predisposed to love this thing, yeah. right? And so uh, right around that time, you had the 89 Batman film, Frankly speaking, I was too young to see it, and my immigrant parents were like, we don't even know what this thing is. <laughs> Why do you want to go see a Batman? <laughs> right. Yeah. So um, I did not see that in the theater, or at least I don't recall seeing that in the theater. And I'm not surprised. It was kind of a little too violent, maybe for my age bracket at the time. But I certainly benefited from uh, sort of the radiant effect of yeah. the marketing and the blitz and sort of the, the general bigger attention because Batman was suddenly redefined in the eyes of pop culture, right? Yeah. How did you feel about that just seeing like all the commercials and Taco Bell and action figures and everything and there's Batman was all in black and it very different than the one that you were pretending to be while sliding on trees. Were you like, cool, just a different take on Batman? Yeah, if anything, it was the grown up older brother and okay. suddenly I had a new context to explore. Okay, right? cool. So the 89 Batman film drops, it's a it's a paramount success. And then all of a sudden, you had this crazy renewed interest in children as an audience. And so entire blocks of programming were built roughly in that 89-90 bracket. So you had a handful of things that had changed. The first and foremost of which was uh, Fox Fox basically pro started programming a block called Fox Kids yeah. in the afternoon. And as part of that block, uh, there was a number of different shows like Eek the Cat, for those that may remember, Bobby's World that may remember. Uh, and then... I had forgotten. Yeah. <laughs> but it suddenly all came back. And then you had um, this brand new show called Batman the Animated Series, right? Which was really meant to piggyback off of the success of the 89 film and really kind of tee up returns that would come a few years later. So I remember, gosh, it was probably... Summer of 91, and right around that time, you had a big flip at retail at Toys R Us because people are, there's kind of like a spring and fall when things come out, at least in the toy industry, and right around that time, Kenner had flipped the planogram for it to be Batman the Animated Series. It was like three months shy of the actual premiere date in September, and I remember looking at this thing and trying to process and comprehend, <laughs> A, dark colors... Yeah. B, red is kind of this color theory defining, you know, moonscape silhouette yeah. of Batman. And then seeing the character of Two-Face, which to me was this foreign character that I was not familiar with. Because you had never read the comics. You'd been just watching the 66 TV show. For the most part. I, I may have been kind of zeitgeist familiar with the character yeah. of Two-Face, but I had never really seen him portrayed. And here he was in action figure form and, frankly speaking, <laughs> the peg warmer. And it was the only one I could get my hands on. But suddenly, that was my first purchase, right? It was Two-Face himself. Um, and I'll, I'll never forget it because you had this duotone suit, this grotesque blue face, um, smeared white hair. And then whatever brilliant toy designer thought it would be awesome to add this accessory in, Two-Face came with a gold chain. So he had this big <laughs> gold chain medallion around his neck. And I just remember grabbing my other Batman toys and adding Two-Face and suddenly it was a different dynamic, right? I think I had the superpower Batman, the okay, blue yeah. and gray. Yeah, the, the squeeze the legs for the punch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I certainly had some of the 89 figures, but it was different and new now that Two-Face was part of it because the rogues canon was so much richer than just Joker and I think Penguin was available at the time, sort of yeah. a simplified version of Penguin. So 
man, I'm I'm <laughs> I'm all over the place. But the the point is, I remember that moment in time. Yeah. F- from a figural perspective first, and then it became about the show. And I think anybody that's seen the show to date can tell you from the first note of that score, uh, and the introduction and the intro itself you knew that television was never going to be the same again. And at least for me, it was like, I I will never be the same again. After yeah. seeing, um, again, this sort of silhouetted, a silhouetted moment where it's it's uh, crime versus the Batman emerging out of the shadows. You see the flash of the Batmobile. It's it's incredible, yeah. right? And even today, I can, I can hear it and I can feel my heart kind of palpitating um, <laughs> because it's so rich and it's so nuanced and it dares to be a little bold yeah. certainly for the time and certainly for the audience yeah for me the i'm a little older than you so i had 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 time to absorb the batman 66 really wait for the 89 mm. movie to come out read a lot of comics and the magic of that show was like oh this is clearly because of the success of of burton in the in the new batmania the 89 batman and yep definitely the the art deco for sure we're going to keep that from the keaton movie and, and really play that up but then it was just like the Finally, they put a comic book on screen. Yeah. And the animated series ends up doing lots of different things and inventing things. But I love the Batman 89 movie, but it was also like, what? Batman doesn't wear all black. Okay, I'll go with it because I have no other option if I want to see Batman on a big screen. Yeah. Unlike today. Uh, (laughs) But just like, oh, and he's got all the rogues gallery and he takes things seriously. But Robin is still there, but he has a sense of humor and he is a detective and a crime fighter and you know he puts on like it was the first time you know growing up as a kid mostly of the 80s that on screen was that's the actual comic book tone wise character wise variety wise everything and i think it's interesting that you highlight that because for me it was a fulfillment of the promise i think batman 66 was the sugar-coated pill yeah. <laughs> uh, and in and in 92, it's kind of when that coding faded away and I understood medicinally what this was, <laughs> right? Yeah. And and why it was really good for me. Yeah. Did you have anyone to share it with? Yeah. Uh, I sort of mentioned earlier that my next door neighbor, a gentleman by the name of Matt Newman, he was my proverbial Robin. Okay. So for him and I, we were able to kind of have those afternoons together because here's the thing, uh, and and the audience may not know this, but what's crazy about this first season of Batman the Animated Series, the first order was 65 episodes, <laughs> 65 half-hour episodes, yeah. which is something you you simply don't see today. The other thing, too, I'll kind of highlight is that every single episode was um, had an original score and was orchestrated by a studio orchestra, right? So it was just heightened yeah. to the nth degree, and it still survives kind of as this incredible uh, modicum of art. Um, because of those decisions. But for a year and a half, basically, Matt and I had new episodes um, every single week. Uh, and in many cases, in syndication in the afternoons, right? It was it was a powerful thing. Yeah, yeah. So um, as a kid, then, you related more to Batman than Robin or both? Like, I, I, I get what you're saying of you. you there's two of you, and you, you split it up, and one got to be Batman, sure. one got to be Robin. But as you're watching the show... Did Batman feel like this foreign, strange adult thing and you could see from Robin's perspective? Or did you see yourself in Batman? Wow. So deep. Uh, I think I have to pay you like 65 an hour for this, right? So 
Interesting. At the time, I think aspirationally, it was all about Batman. Okay. And in many respects, Matt could have Dick Grayson, right? Yeah. In Robin. And if anything, I wanted him to have that space. <laughs> you wanted to give him the Robin space. <laughs> right. <laughs> that said, as I've matured as a fan, and of course, the animated series served as this catalyst point, right? And I started exploring the comics more seriously, going back, going forward, obviously exploring some of the other material that was out there, it's changed over time. Yeah. Right? And I find myself in an adult's body now appreciating <laughs> what, essentially being the age that Bruce Wayne was projected to be in in the context of the show. Yeah. And I find myself unable to reconcile the character of Batman and me. Really? Through the, yeah. I mean, there are things that are defining about Batman and defining about Bruce that are very much so baked into me, right? Contextually, maybe it's important that I I fill you in that for me growing up, I was the son of immigrants. Um, They were much older, so I'm a skip generation baby. Okay. Right? So I always had to help around the house. And when I kind of broke that age, just just past 92, um, I started to explore not only Batman, but Superman. And for me, there was kind of this split it was a dichotomy of i saw myself both in the character of, or persona of batman and bruce and then also in the persona of clark and i was something caught in between right okay. light and dark um but small... did i imagine the immigrant uh story of superman spoke to you yeah very much so okay right uh, and certainly like the unlikely child of two older parents yeah because um, my parents tried for 14 years and the doctor said nope not gonna happen <laughs> um so all that's to say, as an adult, I now look back, especially as a de- at the depiction of Batman in the series, and I actually find myself more resonant with the character of Bruce than Batman himself. Okay. Batman is who I aspire to be. <laughs> Bruce is who I am, okay. right? And just, again, for the sake of saying it, this is one of the things that's so brilliant about this show is that it dared to let Bruce Wayne be a real character, and in many respects, the foil to Batman, right? So we today are sort of obsessed with a version of Batman. And what I mean by that is he's sort of twofold. He's not Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne died in the alley. Right right now, culturally in time, we mark Batman as kind of like the dead version of Bruce Wayne. Something else emerged out of the alley that day. Right. His, his soul is a bat screaming for revenge. And right. Bruce Wayne is a mask he has to wear. Yeah. Exactly. And, and we are obsessed with the idea of the bat god, which is sort of a... a a uh, phrase coined by the comics industry, meaning that he's always pre- prepared for every moment in time. Uh, he's constantly calculating every single perfect move, and he's always got the perfect thing to save the day. What I love about the animated series is that Bruce was not that, or at least they let him be the bloody and bludgeoned version of himself. And he yeah. was always, he he donned the mask and he was always fighting, but he was constantly getting cut and constantly getting hit and co- constantly getting beat. And then he would pick himself up over again. And yeah. that sort of celebrated him as the hero. I digress. <laughs> what I love about Bruce Wayne is that he is, and this is what resonates with me most about the character in the show. He is alive. He honestly does not want to be Batman, but feels compelled to do so, and is constantly trying to save the city and certainly save himself outside of, of the Bat persona. Yeah. And that's what I love about Bruce, is he dares he dares to be happy. He constantly has to choose in the show and ultimately in the Mask of the Phantasm, right? He constantly has to choose 
my happiness or uh, the the sanctity and protection of, of Gotham, which yeah. is what my parents would have wanted, right? So I love Bruce for that. And I, I look to him as kind of this 30-something now, and I want to desperately be him. But on the same token, there's kind of a, an element of sadness to him because he never lets himself be happy. Yeah, yeah, that's really powerful. Uh, yeah, because it, Batman is a wish fulfillment, is a dangerous and weird wish fulfillment. Yeah. Yeah, it, and I, one of the things I do like about the animated series is that you get to see Bruce Wayne actively involved with his company yeah. in trying to make a difference. And, you know, the, it's a thing that goes around. Is sometimes it's a joke. Sometimes it's like kind of serious essays on Twitter threads about how the whole Batman mythos is broken because if a millionaire should just invest in, you know, social <laughs> services, you know. Sure. In, in Batman, the animated series is definitely heightened, but it always had that element of he had such empathy for the villains. Yeah. And if he could do something structurally through the Wayne Foundation, you'd get to see episodes where he kind of struggles toward that. Yeah. And he's always trying, and it really is the, I've got nothing left to do, but dress up as this terrifying figure and... and try to stop the horrible thing that's going to happen because I tried every other way. Yeah, Batman is the last resort. Batman is the last resort. Yeah, so the show is just kind of a great answer to not making him this kind of feel-good fantasy of what if you could let out your rage from bad things by just (laughs) beating the crap out of, you know, hench people who are, uh, you know, in poverty, so they have to work for the two-face, you know, and (laughs) getting into uh, all those things. Um you say you see yourself now in Bruce Wayne. Is that because of the corporate uh, identity? And I don't mean that in, in any sort of bad way. Or do you mean somebody who is striving to be happy first? Interesting. Again, $65 an hour question. <laughs> um, wow. I think the answer ultimately lies in the fact that I'm a billionaire playboy and (laughs) doing my very best to navigate this space, Joseph. Um, No. I think it's more, you're not wrong. I think there's a duality to my life in that I am a kind of professional. And even though it's, it's fun to be immersed in the world of pop culture, there's a duality. And we kind of talked about it earlier in that. I play one professional capacity during the day, <laughs> and then I have a different capacity at night. Okay, yeah. So uh, that dark kind of... obsessive desire to create children's IP. Yeah, yeah. In a in a cowl, of course, in the dark. <laughs> no, I, I joke, but I also see the the uh, contrast between Bruce Wayne having to like this is what I need to do to maintain this company, to maintain this kind of jigsaw puzzle of a life, and yeah. Batman is the more like obsessive part of himself yeah it's the it's the, the driven exactly yeah it's the driven piece the one i can't ignore even if i wanted to okay okay is there anything else you see differently about the show as an adult do you like see it from a more analytical perspective do you find yourself going like ah the second act was weak in this episode or sure. that kind of thing how, how, what do you get from it as an adult i think i look back at the show in pure admiration uh as somebody who not only is attempting to build for kids tv but in the same respect as just creatively speaking in general it's um you just don't have television like that anymore yeah it's not being created like that what's incredible about this show is there is no big bad you're not building to some crazy arc every 10 22 episodes whatever instead it dares to allow these characters these characters to be locked in their trauma yeah and then seeing that trauma play out over and over and over again. And despite it all, 
always choosing kind of the the side of the angels and attempting to channel that trauma. So it's philosophically, it's fascinating. Yeah. Right. Uh, the other the other point too is that I think it's a rarity because it is serialized. It's wholly serialized. Every single adventure is self contained within a single episode, with some small exceptions yeah, like the demon's touch two parter yeah. or whatever or robin's reckoning uh so I, I really for me as an adult i look back and sure there are episodes that are greater than others but on the same to- on the same token i have to admire and applaud the creators in their time making these choices like a perfect example is uh i just mentioned this episode called robin's reckoning right and i think if i'm not mistaken it was the introduction of the dick grayson character and one day he wasn't there, and the next day he was. And they they didn't bother to explain it. They just embraced the idea that Robin's a character in the zeitgeist. Of course he's there, yeah. right? And they told the story of his origin, you know, but they did it in retrospect. Tony Zuko was coming back to town. Turns out he was the insurance fraud guy that was working for the mob that ultimately killed Dick Grayson's parents. So at the time, the show... Um, had sort of a hard and fast set of rules. And these were rules that were handed down to them from the FCC. Okay. There's a great book called Batman Animated, written by a guy named Chip Kidd. It, it may be out of print at the moment, but they talk about these rules because the um, the artists in the in kind of the concept room came up with this great image of all the things they can't do. So it was, <laughs> it was things like endangering a child, nudity, um, actual, like, bullet or gun gun violence these kinds of things right like bullets actually hitting yes certainly lots of guns are fired. lots of guns yeah. are in, in in the show so they always had to keep these things in mind so like the perfect example of what i'm talking about again in this episode robin's reckoning they had this moment and they had to choose whether or not to show robin's parents being killed and they actually animated my understanding is they animated a sequence where his parents fall uh, and you see the the bullet hit the line. His parents fall to the ground. It's like very horrific, yeah. and, and of course very impactful. But they dared to say, okay, instead of showing not telling, we're going to tell and not show. And so they came up with these really clever little hooks, very poetic, nuanced moments in time to say it in a different way. And so in this episode, you see you see Dick Grayson's face. It's a it's sheer terror, abject terror, right? And then you see the trapeze empty, and you know exactly what has happened, but you don't have to actually see the violence to understand the depth of what's before us, right? So it's these kinds of choices that are riddled throughout the show. I guess riddled is the right word. (laughs) Riddled throughout the show, and you can't help but be haunted by these choices because they're 10 degrees deeper than if we had actually seen the act in of itself. So nothing but love and admiration in retrospect. Yeah, yeah. Have have you ever made a different life decision because of Batman the Animated Series, where career or or love life or anything? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, so, couple things. Um, just kind of fun and fancy free for the sake of saying it. Uh, once upon a time in high school, I worked at the Warner Brothers Studio Store, right, <laughs> which was at the time a thing. Yeah, and I specifically worked in the gallery. So I was selling all of the original lithographs and, and actual cells and serious cells from the series. Oh, wow. Because all things I couldn't afford, of course, yeah. right? But I was there curating those collections and selling them directly. So that was kind of fun and sing-song. Um, 
I guess the second thing is a couple times throughout my life, uh, like my 30th birthday party, for example, I held, held what was called the Batman-animated ball uh, <laughs> and invited all my friends and we rented out an, a deco theater in Fullerton and it's all mood lit and it was lovely and everybody dressed up and uh, I had good friends from uh, DC Comics that were there that came in with boatloads of, of prizes. We just had a grand old evening. Um, again, small, fun and fancy free. Um, last year, on the inside of my wedding band, with the permission of my wife, I had the Superman, Batman animated symbol and Wonder Woman symbols uh, inscribed. Oh, right? nice. Just kind of a personal little uh, note to myself. Uh, it's all about kind of that hope, truth, justice. Yeah. Um, so these things definitely, it's all baked into who I am. And I'm yeah. constantly making choices based around what I believe. Like. You think of your heroes and the choices that they would make in, in the circumstances that they're given. And I'm constantly visiting this thing of like, you know, it's sort of that what would Batman do or, yeah. or what would Bruce do? That's not to say that I'm constantly running around with a uh, a devil and an angel on my shoulder <laughs> weighing every moment in time and hearing Kevin Conroy speak to me. But uh, it's hard not to know that these things are baked into you and how they actually influence your everyday life. Yeah, yeah. I hear what you're saying about the way Batman is presented now versus in the animated series where he's more fallible uh, yeah. and can be surprised and all that. But I think there's still something to me in the animated series that I, I don't think has been on the big screen and in other ways of him being a little bit of the adult in the room because the the animated series doesn't play the uh, as much of the Frank Miller vengeance in my heart beats yeah uh that he does feel like a little bit like the adult in the room who thinks ahead yeah and there's something comforting to me about that like uh made a joke with my friend uh jackie cation a while back on her podcast of like batman feels like the guy like i would like to go to disneyland with because <laughs> he would have the fast passes in advance and he would have things yeah. kind of scoped out and thought out ahead do you feel a kinship to that part of batman that is a, a planner yeah. Not that insane I have a plan for everything that I think does get overplayed in modern Batman, but that more like I'm looking at all the different ways this uh, tree might branch off, and I'm, and I'm kind of thinking ahead. So I'm a little creeped out right now. <laughs> it feels like you've been hiding in the nooks and crannies of my life <laughs> and observing these things of me. Um, I'm very much so a planner. Okay. Whether that's a direct result of observing this character and, and loving on this character, or it's just who I am or what's been baked into me through the years, but I've always been a bit of a planner and I find a kind of comfort in having predetermined what my day or what, what the variables may be so that I know how to react in real time. Yeah. Right. So absolutely. Uh, he would be the most wondrous person to go to Disneyland with, <laughs> if only because you know, he would go to the nines to make sure that it was the perfect day. Yeah. But I can't necessarily say that he himself would actually enjoy the experience. No. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it just seems a little frivolous for him, yeah. I would imagine. Yeah. Like maybe if he thought taking Harvey to uh, Harvey Dent to Disneyland <laughs> would somehow cure him, please, he would be all in on that. Uh, what do you think about Harley Quinn? That's obviously one of the things that gets discussed a lot that she was yeah. invented in this show. Do you think that a part of her popularity is because she was invented in this specific uh, oeuvre of the show? Do you think she would have been as popular? If she had started in the comics and, and moved to the animated series? I can't say that she would have been as popular. Uh, mostly because, at the time at least, the animated series was the biggest opportunity to introduce something new. And what's beautiful and brilliant about the show is it's depicted in every time. 
So it can be the 1940s. It can be current day. They dare not say, yeah. right? And on the same token, they're painting the most codified romantic versions of all of the established characters, right? So we're getting Riddler and sort of his prime Riddler persona. We're getting Joker fully realized, right? We're actually not spending a lot of time in the origins of many of these characters. Or if we are, they're the more they're the most horrific potential circumstances leading to the creation of these characters, like Two Face and Clay uh like Two Face and Clayface, right? Yeah, yeah. Or um Mr. Freeze. Yeah. So what was beautiful and brilliant about the introduction of Harley Quinn in this platform is it dared to say, yep, she was always there, right? She was always kind of a part of Joker's kit. If anything, she's so distinct. She's her own woman. And I think what's what's fascinating about the intro- introduction of Harley here is we just accepted. We didn't question. We didn't. It was a different time, right? Yeah. Sans Twitter, sans um, the internet, we didn't have a, a chance to jump onto the forums and say like you know who who is this you know why didn't they use xyz yeah. right there was no opportunity to question it we simply had to embrace it and i i really think that that's part of the reason why she's stuck part of it also too is this beautiful brilliant design by um, bruce tim part of it was arlene sorkin's performance it's just it's a perfect combination of elements and there's really not a lot of examples in the rest of the show where they they tried to introduce these original characters. Um, I don't know. There's just, I, I think it was perfect place, perfect time, or right place, right time. Yeah, right? yeah. I was old enough to potentially be pedantic about it, but I wasn't because exactly what you're saying. It just felt like, great idea. Why hasn't that always yeah. been there? It, it opens up the Joker to see a different dynamic so we can continue to enjoy the Joker without it getting repetitive. And then obviously Harley is very interesting all by herself and how does that dynamic change with Batman and all those things uh yeah so I I think a power of it to me and a reason that I've always liked the animated series is I am big on I like emotional truths in my genre stuff comic books Star Wars Star Trek you know Doctor Who whatever it is I, I like emotional truth but I don't want it to take away from the weird world yeah. That drew us there. Yeah. Uh, like I was at a Doctor Who convention this weekend and there was a lot of great talk about the meaning behind the the Doctor's greatest adventures. And I was like, yeah, that's great. But he still does have to travel in time and space and fight <laughs> yeah. weird monsters because it's not either or. It's the marrying of the two. Uh, and what I'm going to, toward with that, I think Batman the Animated Series married the moody darkness, but also the sense of humor mm-hmm. that comic books can have. And that the Joker was crazy and scary, but also funny, and that that can then translate to Harley. I think Harley in the comics at that time probably would have been all dark. Yeah. But because she was on the animated series, she could have so much more comedy and charm. Yeah. That I think that's part of what exploded the character. Well, so interesting that you say that, because I think part of of that charm is that Harley was somebody to bounce the Joker's crazy off of within a quote-unquote safe space. Yeah. So it wasn't Joker throwing his his chaos at Batman and us attempting to understand that character within that context of, of the dynamic and the relationship between foil and, and, and foe, right? But it was actually the two of them ping-ponging their crazy. Yeah. And on the same token, creating this humanized character in Harley who is fundamentally certainly in that moment in time driven by love yeah 
her love and fascination of this character of Joker. And so you get these incredible episodes like Mad Love, which actually did start in the, in the comics, believe it or not. Um, and it tells this very tragic story of one Harleen Quinzel, right, who's constantly at the ruination of the Joker. So it dares to humanize and add a degree of heart between these two wacky, terrorizing personas. Yeah. And it it humanizes both. It shows it shows Joker as this very fallible um I'm gonna ignore the the, the kit of the Joker for a second, yeah. but it shows him as a bit of a womanizer and uh very self-centered and goal oriented, right? Yeah. Um maybe singularly so. And then it shows Harley as a bleeding heart. That everything else is superfluous. She does it because she's she loves the man she loves, right? Yeah. But she's really attempting to get his attention. And when she ultimately doesn't get it, that's when she shines the greatest, right? There are episodes like um, Harley's Holiday, where yeah. it's, it's just about her and Ivy going out and developing a relationship. Um, anyway, I, I digress. <laughs> but I, I do want to touch on something real quick yeah. because you brought it up. And I just had an opportunity before today's podcast to look at the original Writer's Bible for Batman the Animated oh, Series. Cool. And there are, there are two things, if, if you'll allow me, I'd love Absolutely. to just kind of throw out verbatim. Um, so the first, it's the very, very first paragraph in, uh, in the writer's Bible itself. It's the very first thing that you read. Okay. Okay. So introduction, night in Gotham city, only the faintest rays of moonlight break through the steamy darkness. Shadows are black, twisted and frightening. The thick night air carries many sounds, breaking glass, sputtering neon, harsh, bitter voices and police sirens, always police sirens. Most of Gotham's daytime inhabitants have long since fled to the suburbs or into security-gated apartments. This is not a safe place after dark, right? <laughs> so it sets the mode, yeah. the, the mood almost instantly. But to your point of characterization from earlier, on the next adjacent page, under writing style and structure, it says, Our series will stress economic, well-structured plots containing snappy, controversial dialogue and characters whose actions are motivated and believable. We want expository information conveyed as visually as possible, stressing visual shorthand over lazy expository speeches, <laughs> right? So yeah. they, they were very concerned about hitting the right tone of this thing, but on the same token, creating real characters. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really cool. And you, is this, uh, where did you look at this Bible? Um, there are various copies available on the internet. Okay, cool. um, I found mine on a site called World's Finest. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, just like your wedding ring. Uh, <laughs> Would you want ever the real world to look like uh, Gotham City just aesthetically? Not in terms of the uh, the gated uh, <laughs> suburbs yeah. and everybody's fled uh, urban areas. That that doesn't sound good. Not the crime everywhere. But just that aesthetic. Do you like that aesthetic of it is kind of Art Deco but also kind of timeless somewhere between the 20s and the 90s? <clears throat> For me personally? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I love that look. It was my first introduction to Art Deco in general. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, there is a kind of timelessness to it. Uh, in fact, the very theme of my wedding was timeless. My wife and I actually sought to recreate something like that. I won't say it's out of Gotham specifically, okay. right? Uh, but there is something there's something very structured and solid uh, 
about the style in general. So sure, I would love to see more of that in the world. Here here in LA, we have a bit of it yeah. baked around us, right? Like Griffith Griffith Observatory is perfectly an example of this. Oh, absolutely. Right? I can see a, you know, lightning across a red sky yeah, in front yeah. of Griffith <laughs> Observatory, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> so, sure, I'd I'd love to see more of that and and frankly, it's something at least in California that we don't have a lot of that kind of structured history at least in our architecture. So for me as a California kid who grew up in a chicken wire house, right? Yeah. Um, stucco house. Uh, yeah, I would love to see that kind of romanticized construction of an era gone by, but recontextualized for today. Yeah, yeah. And I think it works so well in the series because not only, you know, when I was a kid, it was like, this looks cool, a good decision. Uh, but now it's like it it speaks of fallen grace, right? Yeah. When this city was being built, yeah, people wanted it to be this beautiful, glamorous place and now it's having having some issues. It's yes, it's yes. both. <laughs> it's right? both. It's both. If you could have one of Batman's skills that are showcased in the show, because I feel like it's such a, a full collection of the various uh, abilities of Batman celebrated, which one would you want? Would you want like disguises, fighting skills, detective skills, brooding, empathy? What would you want to be best <laughs> at? Uh, I'd, <clears throat> I'd say it's twofold. So the first would probably be Bruce's will. Okay. And I think Will is kind of a cheat to get all of those things on, <laughs> on your menu. Independent of Will, man, I would love to have the kind of support structure that Bruce Wayne has. Yeah. That's not to say that he's not worthy of uh, an incredible father figure in Alfred or the undying uh, the undying loyalty of Barbara Gordon or, or um, Dick Grayson or even Commissioner Gordon. But l- real life, you don't necessarily get those things. And I don't want to paint the portrait that I'm suffering in a hole <laughs> and my relationships aren't great. In, in many respects, they are. And I'm very grateful for my family and, and in, in, in all respects. But there is something unique about Bruce where everybody in his life believes in the, in the bigger crusade. Yeah. And even though it frustrates them, they, get, they either get out of the way or they contribute. Yeah. Um, and they also dare to keep him in check. And I think we could all benefit from a family like that. Yeah. Yeah. Who say we totally believe in your mission. We understand you have to do your mission. Hey, you haven't slept and your stitches are ripped open. <laughs> yeah. Stop. Yeah. 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 How do your, you, you mentioned your parents being older, not quite getting what the deal with all the bat stuff is. Uh, how do they feel now that that bat stuff is in some ways your entire life? Oh, wow. So I'm actually going to, step away from my parents because my parents understood. Okay. They let me love and embrace the things that I've loved and embraced my whole life. My grandfather was a completely different story. (laughs) Okay. And these are things that I only learned in retrospect as I've uh, spent the last few years interviewing my mom and trying to capture as much of the family history as possible, right? So again, remember, I'm a skip generation baby. So my grandfather um, was born uh, pre-World War II, um, was involved in the war, like, and... For him, here he saw a 10-year-old, 12-year-old, 15-year-old, 17-year-old grandson who wasn't giving up, in his eyes, the things of his youth, right? And he was constantly worried about me and supposedly had all these side conversations with my mom and my aunt about, (laughs) hey, is this kid going to, like, is he going to grow out of it, right? Because my my grandfather was a man of his hands. He was a a trade skill kind of guy, immigrant himself. So, uh, yeah, I, I sort of have to highlight him. And I, I think what's lovely about it is that I didn't know that part about him. I didn't know his doubt. It never influenced me. 
But looking back, it's nice to know that if I if I ever had that opportunity to tell him that it's not only going to be okay, it's going to be great. Yeah. And these are things that are going to define me both as a person and professionally speaking. Yeah. And I think he would have been startled and surprised to see how much it has influenced my life for the positive. Yeah. And that there's been a cultural shift. Yeah. Where there isn't, I think, anywhere near as much pressure to identify things that we liked as youth as things that should be put aside. Yeah. Because they're just, they're economically viable for one thing. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and I think just culturally, they're emotionally viable. Did you, so in your own fandoms, have you ever felt found yourself compromised in the eyes of family i'd love to throw the question back to oh you. yeah yeah absolutely i mean my parents are supportive as well but there there's a, a point at which they're like yeah. I, I, I don't get it i mean i know you like that but i don't get it yeah um yeah and i remember my grandmother being at at the the generation she was you know world war ii generation as well yeah and pretty diligently just bought us whatever the new thing was but there was that total disconnect of like don't know why this makes you happy. I was thinking about this in particular uh, because I was at that Doctor Who convention. My father just said that to two of the actors who played the Doctor at a convention of just like, don't know why, but you make my kids real happy, so thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so there's never been like great, like, all right, all right, time to grow up. Uh, but there has been the, cool, good for you, don't quite get it. Um, and it just definitely culturally. For me, I, I, I'm old enough that there was a, you don't. You can identify the other kid who likes Star Wars and you can talk about it quietly. Yeah. And when that kind of shifted culturally into this world that we live in now, even for a long time in my comedy career, I, I did comedy outside of conventions and comedy at conventions and the two could never interrelate, you know? Yeah. Uh, you could maybe stretch and do a Batman sketch outside yeah. of... Uh, convention, but you would never do a sketch pretending to be a Dalek outside. You know, in the fact that I have gone from the transition in my life of being ashamed for knowing too much about Star Wars to ashamed to not knowing (laughs) enough about Star Wars culturally, you know. So, and sorry to interject here, but isn't that fascinating that that's where we're at? I do recall a time in high school where it wasn't, that was not the case, right? Yeah. These, These things were sort of still church and state. Yeah. For me, I was unapologetic about it. And if anything, that that was to my benefit, right? I, I was sort of the medium by which the kids who felt like they couldn't love the things that they really did love but couldn't talk about it, they could bounce that off of me. Yeah. And on the same token, everybody else who was too into it could um, do the same, right? Uh, so if anything, my high school experience was kind of being a little bit of a connectivity point. But it was by no means living in a popularized society. Yeah. And I'll never forget, a couple years after I graduated from high school, I think, maybe 2001, so a, a year or so after graduating high school, this girl that, <clears throat> excuse me, was uh, that I was kind of chasing for a while in high school, it never worked out, right? Uh, she was a bit on the more popular end of the spectrum, okay. let's say, in the hierarchy of high school. <laughs> I don't know if we can swear, but... Yes, you can. Uh, so in the hierarchy of high school bullshit... And uh, it never worked out, but not for lack of trying on both of our parts. And I remember getting something like a text message or a Facebook message or something in like 2002, where she wrote me and she said, I just saw Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. And I just wanted to let you know that I finally understand. (laughs) Like, I finally understand you. And I think I finally understand 
this culture. Right. Right. And it was this lovely little note on a relationship that didn't mean anything, but really helped me kind of dot the I or cross the T of a time long gone by. Yeah, that's so great. I had a kind of opposite experience. I had a, oh, no. uh, like a project where like a bunch of people had to come over and work together. So there's a bunch of people in my bedroom in high school, including this girl that I liked. Um, and I think she was like, I'm I'm trying to like you, but you're weird uh, kind of vibe. And I had a Star Trek poster at the time. And she was like, which track uh, is the original track? OK, uh, yeah. yeah. And she was like, uh, you shouldn't have that in your in your bedroom if you want anything to happen in here. It's <laughs> like, OK, that's a, a little pointed, but all right. <laughs> and I wasn't going to take it down. But like that was the culture. Yeah. And then years later, I saw on Facebook, she was like posting something about Star Trek. I've always loved Star Trek. Sure you have. Well, and it was like, was it a sure you have? Or was it, were you lying to yourself? Or yeah. You, were you, like you were talking about where people came to you. Like, was she trying to come to me for some sort of validation that it was okay to like Star Trek. Interesting. And I will never know because I'm not going to ask. <laughs> <laughs> Don't want to cross that bridge. <laughs> sure. We're going to move on to our How Obsessed Are You questions. Great. Uh, so do you think about Batman the Animated Series every day? Absolutely. Um, so for those that do not know. Uh, Batman the Animated Series spilled into Superman the Animated Series, which spilled into the new Batman uh, Adventures, which spilled into arguably my favorite favorite anything of all time, which is Batman Beyond, right? Okay. So it's all connected. And then it ex- extends beyond that into Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. So you've got like 15 years worth of animated storytelling. I only say that because, yes, I absolutely do think about it every single day for many of the reasons we highlighted earlier, but also because the face of my Apple Watch is the Batman Beyond logo. (laughs) Oh, nice, nice. So every time I'm looking to see what time it is, I'm reminded of my (laughs) commitments to a a greater, darker Gotham. (laughs) Excellent. Do you actually actively rewatch very often? Yeah, uh, in fact, last night in prep for this, I watched one of the more famous episodes of all time, which is Almost Got Him. Okay, yeah. Uh, but no, I, I do revisit with some frequency. Okay. Um, yeah. Do you feel, are you the kind of fan who can just like watch an episode because you feel like it? Or do you commit to a rewatch and watch all of the episodes? No, I'm I'm more, because I've seen it so many times over yeah. and over again. Right now at this stage in life, it's more of just an old friend. Yeah. Uh, so could be once every week or once every month or whatever it may be it's just about that resonant moment of throwing it on and feeling those feelings again. yeah yeah right. that makes sense when people walk into your home can they tell you're obsessed with the show 100 <laughs> percent. no I, I mean i live in la like you do right and there's only so much space that you have to dedicate to these kinds of things right um for us at home kim and i really try to keep it quote unquote, as classy as possible. That said, the first thing you see when you walk in are these um, beautiful vertical shelves riddled with um, graphic novels, but interspersed amongst them are three statues specifically. Um, The first is Batman, the animated series, Superman, the animated series and Wonder Woman um, from the animated movie. Right. Because Kim's a huge Wonder Woman fan. So, um, yeah, you could tell that almost instantaneously, like there's something going on with this guy's uh, collection. But (laughs) if you visit me at work. Different story. I have more room to really have my collection on display. Yeah. So there's a lot of animated love in there. And has your love of action figures continued? Do you still have the Batman, the animated series action figures? Brother, let me tell you. <laughs> so uh, truth be told, I mentioned I was at Blizzard for many years, yeah. right? We were working with uh, DC Comics and DC Direct at the time. So I was uh, overseeing that account. We were doing a lot of World of Warcraft 
um, comics and collectibles. I got to know the, the folks over there extremely well. I consider them now lifelong friends. Cool. There were two gentlemen there at the time overseeing the business. One is still there, um, a guy by the name of Jeff, Jeff Trojan and Jim Fletcher. And for years, <clears throat> and I mean this vehemently, <laughs> for years, maybe as many as five to seven years, every time we would see each other, which was many times uh, over the course of a year, whether it be at trade shows or just in meetings, I would constantly remind them that now is the time to do Batman the Animated Series, Yeah, right? Because I'm a guy in my mid-20s with some degree of disposable income. Like, let's have some fun. Yeah. You guys need to really pursue this. I think you could nail it and and uh, knock it out of the park, right? And we were constantly having these dialogues back and forth of like, well, how would you do it? And, you know, uh, who would be in the waves and that kind of thing. And so unofficially, we were planning out years worth of product, <laughs> right? Um, while we were sitting in lobbies, uh, airport lobbies in, yeah. in China or whatever it may be. And so lo and behold, I get a call one day um, from one of them. I shan't, I shan't reveal who. <laughs> and they said, so something shifted in the Warner Brothers movie slate, and we now have to backfill it with product, and we're going to take a swing at Batman the Animated Series. Wow. Right? And I was like, awesome. I can't wait to be there day one buying all of this stuff. Because um, that's that's the thing is uh, when you work in in my industry, you uh, you constantly get free stuff. Yeah. But for me, like I always want like like you would support any artist, right? right? Like I always want to support the things that I truly love. And so, of course, I was there day one in my local local comic book uh, store picking it up. So I'm very proud to say that after all that lobbying and love, um, Batman the Animated Series went on and continues to this day be the most successful line that DC Direct or DC Collectibles has ever done. Oh, wow. And they're still they're still producing items, and it's been over a decade now of just continuous cool stuff. That's awesome. So yes, I still collect. <laughs> I'm there. If anything, it's, it's part of a kind of living legacy. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. You have shown me a couple ways that you have made the ideas that, that are in this show kind of permanent. Uh, uh, including your, you know, your your wedding ring and your watch, which are sure, things sure. that you see every day. <laughs> Would you go the next step and get an actual tattoo? Would you put it on your body, or have you? I have not. Uh, I am not at this time in my life. I'm not a tattoo guy. Okay. Um, I've certainly flirted with the idea. The ring for me was kind of a halfway point, um, where I could live with that iconography, but it was just for me, and I didn't have to show it to anybody else. Yeah. Um, that said, I have flirted with the idea. I don't think I could ever settle on a design just as a creative type person Yeah, enough to put it permanently on my body. But years ago, there was a, a great comic, um, called Superman Batman written by Jeff Loeb and, uh, illustrated by Ed McGinnis. And they had this beautiful Batman Superman logo. Um, I would, I, I mean, maybe, maybe that, <laughs> but no, I, I, I just don't know if I could really commit that to my body. Okay. Okay. Would you drive a large van with Batman airbrushed on the side? Oh, you think I don't? <laughs> I didn't see it pull up. So. No, 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 no. Uh, probably not. Yeah. Right? I Like my house illustrates, we attempt to keep it as classy as possible. Um, that said, I'm all about the subversive fandom. So things that are for me. Yeah. Um, great examples. In my car today, I have a light kit installed. So that when I'm driving at night, um, the entirety of my dash is underlit by red. Okay. Um, which is in respect of Batman Beyond, right? Yeah. Because the Batmobile was entirely lit by red. <laughs> so I know that. But when my passengers are coming in, they don't know they that. They don't know. Oh, cool Batman Beyond card. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is this because your respect for this character 
in this show is you take care to say, literally say Batman and Bruce. Is that a, a part of your psychology of like, this is, I want to have this balance in my life where it is the flashy, the gothic, the genre, but then also like grounded by the reality. Yeah, I, I think it's, uh, sure, yes, um, astute observation, Mr. <laughs> Scrimshaw. Uh, beyond that, though, I would also say that um, I have always been a kid that lives in two worlds. Okay. My mind and otherwise. And for me, it's these kinds of small accentuations that make me feel like I'm actually part of the mind part of my my world yeah. or worldview. So I don't have to go so far as to carry the logo on my body. But if I'm driving home in the middle of the night and I've got whatever, the anthem blaring and the, the red light under, you yeah. know, under, underneath my dash, <laughs> I can feel something for a moment. Yeah. Because I've always been a kid that loves the idea of feeling like I'm part of these worlds. It's why I'm, I'm a bit of a prop guy. Like I love props from film and TV. So I love feeling part of this world yeah. and feeling like I'm a part of it. Okay. Bit. That makes a lot of sense. If a presidential candidate that you already supported started talking a lot about Batman, would that increase or decrease your support of that candidate? It would entirely depend on how they would present their opinion of Batman. <laughs> I right? suppose so. If they just started coming out going, what we have to do is just start kicking ass. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right. police state, Batman kind of stuff. No, um, it, it would wholly depend on how they presented their opinion. If they presented their opinion of Batman with the kind of values that you have taken to heart of empathy and drive and attacking a problem from as many different uh, perspectives as possible and violence is an absolute uh, last solution and it was just sort of like this amazing nerd conversation where you're like, the person I was going to vote for anyway gets Batman the way I do. Yeah. Would that be a good thing or would it just be... I think it goes to this sort of divide of when when do you stop talking about pop culture? Would it would it ever be too much for you? Well, it's interesting that you say that because I do look at pop culture as cultural shorthand, right? And in many respects, it's the distillation of the things that we love most about ourselves. And we're attempting to infuse in these created worlds because we want our real world to reflect that. Yeah. So uh, if it was presented with sincerity, of course, my admiration would grow, right? Yeah. I think about... Um, I, I'm not shy in saying it. I was a big fan of uh, President Obama. And I think about all of the ways that he connected with people in general, just talking about everyday stuff that everybody likes. Even to this day, both he and Michelle um, publish these like my favorites of the year kind <laughs> yes. of things. And it's often very surprising to see how pedestrian some of these things are because you just assume, hey, this is a person, a person of global influence. Why would they like xyz right right you know why would they like book smart as a film that's yeah. so pedestrian i'm a pedestrian uh it feels like they're entering my space but i think it, it just highlights the fact that these are real humans just as much as anybody else they just happen to be put on a global stage so sure my admiration would grow and i you know a few years ago i had an opportunity to do a, a ted talk kind of on this subject um, and I chose to focus on um, the geeks have inherited the earth. Okay. And part of the thesis was uh, we live in a hyper-polarized society. Things like politics and religion have become exhaustive, certainly to our generation, right? And so we use these fandoms as shorthand between each other because we desperately want those emotional connections. It's part of who we are. Yeah. 
Um, and we can say, for better or for worse, I like X. Let's hang out and at least talk about something that's not exhaustive, yeah. right? It goes a little deeper than that. But I think to maybe um, highlight your point, it's inevitable. This conversation on a global stage is inevitable. Yeah, Our generation is sort of rising in in the ranks, so to speak. We're inheriting the earth as we speak. So we will see a candidate sooner than later that talks about these things. And it'll be very interesting to see if people latch on, right? It's yeah. only a matter of time, you know, maybe even in four years from now, where the guy who, or guy or hopefully gal who's um, sitting on that on that debate stage is like, let me tell you about all the life lessons that Ash Ketchum <laughs> taught me, yeah. right? Or, yeah. his, or his beloved buddy Pikachu, you know? Yeah. These things are going to happen, and it's going to be fascinating to see yeah. what it all means for everybody. Yeah, it's a great uh, argument for just, uh, you know, ballot voting. Just, you know, got to vote for them all. Just yeah. vote for, all, <laughs> vote for all, well, all the Democrats. And, you know, not too long ago, Kamala Harris came out and was talking about how much of an X-Men fan she is. And I can't tell you how much that meant to me for a moment in time, because here you had this, like, mixed-race kid who was talking about feeling like an outsider in her own world yeah. and looking at things like X-Men as a point of connectivity. And immediately you start, there, there's a kind of emotional resonance, whether you like it or not, yeah. because she's speaking with sincerity. It's yeah. coming from a real place, you know? Yeah. So, um, sure. Can't wait. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. The The next question was about your wedding, but you already answered it. So, <laughs> <laughs> if the only way you could ever watch Batman the Animated Series again was to steal a Blu-ray set from Walmart, would you do it? This goes against the principles of Batman. How dare you, right? This is real justice. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I wouldn't steal the set. Uh, I would do everything within my power to earn the right to access that, okay. know, that content. Right. Yeah. And if I couldn't do it, I think we live in an age where you could probably find somebody who had it. And if anything, it's an excuse to make a friend. <laughs> but you wouldn't steal. If, if, if there's a hypothetical where that was the only way, you just wouldn't. Th this it is feels like too antithetical to the values of the show. Yeah, well, and to the character himself, right? Because for me, Batman has grown beyond just the the animated series, right? I've I've loved him across all sorts of different things. Yeah. So yeah, I'll I'll tell you straight up, I can love and admire the heart and realism of Bruce Wayne from the animated series, but on the same token, I now have an almost Catholic like guilt <laughs> whenever I step out of line. That lawful good, yeah. right? Um. So, yeah, it, it would be just an awful conundrum of, of conscience. Yeah, yeah. Adam West Batman would definitely visit your soul, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> be upset with you for that. If aliens were visiting Earth and you were the human selected to greet them, would you show them an episode of Batman the Animated Series to explain society? Yes, but probably not first, <laughs> right? <laughs> I don't want to paint the illusion that we are all these dark brooding warriors incapable of self-forgiveness, yeah. right? Um <laughs> But yeah, I think there's a there's a broad spread of humanity shared in the show, and you would absolutely want to show a visitor or an outsider um, what it means to be human. Yeah, um, I think I think there's a there's a swatch of that that's to be represented and respected in the show. Okay, do you have a specific episode that you think aliens would enjoy? <laughs> um, you know, interesting that you say that. One that certainly stands out to me, it's one of my all-time favorites, is Beware the Grey Ghost. Okay. So many may know this as the episode where Adam West actually guest starred. And it is all about uh, Bruce's love of this character. Like, he he had kind of this shadow, as, as in capital S, shadow, yeah. 1940s pulp hero called the Grey Ghost. And he grew up with the Grey Ghost. 
and in many cases modeled Batman after that persona That's that was awesome. imagined, a fiction within the fiction, right? And so Adam West plays Simon Trent, who is, he's, he's an actor that played the Grey Ghost. And by episode's end, we discover just how much Bruce as a child was influenced by this content and ultimately gets to team up with the man who had been haunted by this character his entire life, this character that he played on TV who yeah. he felt he was never worthy of, right? And by the end of it, he comes to understand full circle that what I did and what I do matters. Uh, so absolutely, I would show them something like that, right? Okay. Because it shows a very human, childlike love and wonder in Bruce Wayne. And on the same token, we have this huge redemptive arc of the human spirit in Simon Trent, yeah. right? And understanding whole context or whole cloth that what we do matters, whether it be us ourselves or how we influence the people around us. Right. And it would also get, let them know that we kind of go layers deep on our storytelling, that that's yeah. where we are as a, as a culture, that we have that facility yeah. and that desire to go. One level of fiction is not <laughs> enough for us. We need at least three yeah. in most things. Uh, if you were about to see a favorite episode in a theater on the big screen, but a bear was blocking your path, would you try to get around the bear? Absolutely. <laughs> if, if anything, I would buy the bear a bag of popcorn and like <laughs> you just watch together. You would invite the bear in. You, yeah. would, you would have empathy like Bruce. Yeah. Saying, what do you need, bear? Well, and I'm, I can joyfully say that I did see Batman the Animated Series on the big screen in 1993. Oh, wow. So uh, that was the year that um, the, the Mask of Phantasm, Phantasm premiered, yeah. right? And... Uh, What's so fascinating about this movie is that it proved so good that it constantly got a bigger budget and was uh, elevated in the studio over and over and over again. It was only ever meant to be like a direct VHS or um, or on screen kind of thing. Yeah. But the storytelling was so solid that at some point it saw theatrical release. And so I was that kid near UCI in the summer of 93 watching um, this beautiful, romantic, arguably best Batman movie ever. Yeah. Um, and lo and behold, now in retrospect, I imagine a bear with me, right? <laughs> if anything, I see the two of us cheering arms, you know, arms in the Yay, air. Um, yeah, it's just such an incredible. So, yeah, absolutely. All right. Excellent. I ask everyone to make a noise to sum up their obsession. What kind of noise do you have? Oh, there are two that I think about. So the first one is sort of key from uh, from those who remember the Two-Face episode. Um, there's a moment in time where it's kind of the perfect... Uh, um, acclamation of bruce as a person and batman and his obligation and he's he's looking at a one a once beloved friend harvey dent fractured right and so i'll do my very best to Im impersonate this moment but it's a key line and he goes harvey no right <laughs> so i love i love it like a beautiful shakespearean performance yeah. by kevin conroy um so it would be that and the second one is very silly but as we talk about this every time version of batman the bat computer had a very distinct voice and it came in two facets. The first one was this like 1960s room full of processors, like, like you could hear the typewriter going kind of thing. Yeah. Like it was actually hard processing. And then its actual distinct voice would say things in a very robotic, like inconclusive data. Right. <laughs> so I think about all of these. These are sort of the noises of my of my youth. OK. OK. When you're not sure about something, you say to yourself, inconclusive data. Or Harvey, no. <laughs> Trying to decide whether or not you're going to exercise today. Harvey, no. Uh, I ask everyone to give a rating to their obsession. For, so a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the highest, 1 being the lowest, where would you rate yourself? Nine. Nine. Right. It's, again, it's seminal to me. It defines me as a human, um, both past, 
or pro you know, prologue and 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 past and uh i love it beyond that i do have to highlight batman beyond which i probably fall at 10 okay if only because it's a continuation of that adventure right yeah. it's or it, it's a culmination of the seeds that were planted cool awesome so uh we've reached the plugging section of the show so can you tell people where they can find you on social media and anything else you oh want to sure plug? um i have nothing <laughs> i have honestly nothing to plug personally um i just appreciate everybody hanging out uh so you can find me on instagram or on twitter at shadow piper uh beyond that i would actually encourage everybody to continue to check out other episodes of obsessed i think you do an oh, incredible job um Joseph, and, and same thing with Four Center, right? I spent uh, the holidays with my wife in New York City, and I'm telling you, running around the Bowery, listening to episodes of, of, <laughs> um, of you speculating on Rise of Skywalker and its meaning of impact, uh, it was just awesome. So I feel like you're an old friend, even though this is honestly <laughs> the first time that we've hung out. So yeah. if you're out there and you're listening, check out Obsessed, check out Four Center. Uh, and again, my wife was actually on Four Center not too long ago. Yes, yes. Um, um, they were working on Pencils and Parsecs. So she ha- she absolutely says hi. Awesome. Um, but yeah, check out your stuff because you're just so awesome. Oh, well, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. Uh, here are some uh, plugs for all the things that you just plugged. Uh, I will read my standard blah, blah, blah. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram as at Joseph Scrimshaw. You can follow Obsessed Podcast on Twitter and Facebook is at Obsessed Podcast. You can also check out the uh, Star Wars podcast I co-host. That is called Force Center, as you just heard. Uh, plug better by Jason than me. For info on all my upcoming shows and comedy albums, you can check out my website at josephscrimshaw.com, and you can support Obsessed by backing us on Patreon. Full info on that, go to patreon.com slash josephscrimshaw. All right, here are just uh, fun uh, final questions. Uh, one more Batman question. I don't normally throw these into the final questions, fine. but I want to. Uh, I love... Since this podcast is called Obsessed, I love how much Batman's villains are built on their obsessions. So yeah. if you were going to be a Batman villain, what would your shtick be based on your whatever your obsession, oh, your villainous obsession would be? I'm actually going to borrow one. Uh, I love the Riddler. Okay. I think there is something so interesting about the Riddler, if only because he's kind of an, he's an antithesis of Batman. Incredible will, but he can't get past his self-service um, and his terrible desire to prove to others that he's smarter than everyone else in the room, right? I think we're all subject to that feeling at one time or another, so I, I would probably steal the Riddler's shtick. Okay. You would, like, specifically riddles, or just that spirit of, I can't get past my need to prove that I'm worthy? Let's let's do riddles, because <laughs> hell, why not, right? And the question mark is a hell of an icon. It is. It's a good fashion statement, if nothing else. Uh, if you could make the whole world think one thought at the same time, what might that thought be? Harvey, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'll accept that. No, uh, I, honest answer, irrespective of Batman, uh, simply, you are worthy, Yeah. right? A lot of people suffer their entire lives thinking that they're not worthy and they it influences the decisions that they make, even in small and interpersonal relationships or in a business meeting or otherwise. Um, don't have that imposter sy- syndrome. Uh, celebrate and love yourself. You are worthy. Awesome. Awesome. That's what the Riddler needs to hear. Yeah. So it all, it all ties together. The final question for everyone on the podcast is what is happiness? This is a big and complicated question. And in many respects, I'm going to default to... Uh, uh, your previous guest's answer, right? So uh, joy. It's its legitimately knowing that happiness is, is a goal, um, but joy is the perspective by which we can attain that happiness, however temporarily, right? Okay. So I think James Arnold Taylor did such a beautiful job of accentuating 
the, the definition of happiness, and I would be a, a poor substitute to offer anything <laughs> else, right? But, um, you know, I, I had the privilege of meeting up with my elementary school principal over the weekend, um, a really guy, a huge guy of, of standout value, and I'll never forget the, the intrinsic values that he was trying to impress upon us as kids. So, you know, happiness to me, uh, if I can say as much, and I'm actually going to pull up a little list here, and it has, I was not <laughs> anticipating this question. Okay. Um, but happiness is a combination of things, right? And it's absolutely chasing joy. But happiness is respect and integrity and positive mental attitude and initiative and pers- perseverance and cooperation and compassion. Okay. Right? If you can chase those things, somewhere in there, you will find a degree of happiness. Okay. Excellent. I think those are all great answers, a great list. I'm curious for yourself. Uh, I find that when I talk to people uh, that there is a difference between the happiness that we get when we are active. Yeah. uh, So sort of happiness of almost like adventure uh, versus the happiness of uh, contentment or comfort. Yeah. For yourself, when you feel the biggest bursts of just joy is shooting out of your eyes like laser beams. Yeah. Is it? When you're in the moment of an activity, or is it when you have completed something and the day is done and you're alone with your wife, content? Beautiful question. Yes. <laughs> uh, I will not shy away from the fact that I am a, a weird conundrum of a person. Um, I am both introvert and extrovert. So in many respects, when I'm recharging and my introvert side is fed, so I'm in a quiet in some cases, dark room. Okay. And if I'm creating something and the characters are coming together or the world's coming together and you just have that that snap moment where it brings a, a dumb grin on your face, like yeah. it all makes sense, that to me is a, a kind of empiric happiness. Yeah. Um, on the same token, happiness is no more complex than spending that evening watching dumb YouTube videos on the couch <laughs> with my wife. And my cat desperate to just jump on my lap and hang out with us, right? So it needn't be grandeur. Uh, It can be as simple as being surrounded by the people that you love. Awesome. That is a great answer. Thank you so much uh, for doing the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, that is our podcast. Cool. You've been listening to Obsessed. Joseph Scrimshaw and his guest shared some stories with the rest. Rate five stars if you're impressed. So you have... Harvey, no. And then, Harvey, yes. And then, Harvey, maybe?